Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. If you're a weather geek, odds are you've seen the movie Twister, where two storm chasers are fighting to research strong tornadoes in the heart of Tornado Alley. To conduct that research, they used a device called Dorothy, which was revolutionary in the movie. Now, what if I told you my next guest is also using revolutionary technology to study tornadoes, but it is utilized more commonly than you think. Adam Houston from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and his team are using drones as a pivotal tool in the study of supercell tornadoes and storms. This is aiding forecasters in predicting tornado formation. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard. Adam, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thanks for having me. So we're going to have a major geek out today, and we like to do that, two colleagues talking. But before I get into tornadoes and drones and all of those really cool things, tell us a little bit about how you got into meteorology. Yeah, and I I don't think my story is uh, terribly unique because, like most people, I developed a passion passion for weather when I was really young. Um, And it actually stemmed in large measure from what my dad did. He was a civil engineer before he retired, and he did stormwater management. And so in in Austin, Texas, where I was born and raised, there was a lot of flash flooding, um, and the city was ill-prepared. And and, uh, back in May of 1981, there was a significant flood. And as a consequence of that, they developed this flood early warning system, and and he was in in charge of that on some level. And, And so each time there was heavy rain, we had this computer in our in our house that would show all the rain gauges and all the stream gauges and and occasionally and I, I still don't know to this day whether this is actually required or just something he wanted to do he would go out and check the the stream gauges uh firsthand and I would jump in the car with him and so we'd go driving through this torrential uh you know downpour and and check out these gauges and occasionally we'd see the impacts of flooding and you know it was it was thrilling to be in the in the thick of things and uh, you know, at the same time, I, it was humbling to see how weather impacted people. Yeah, so you're, you're right. Your story is very similar to many others in that there, there was some type of experience or, or storm or opportunity like with your dad that introduced you to the field. I think many uh, meteorologists and weather enthusiasts have that same story. Tell us a little bit about your background. Where, where, what are your degrees in and where did you go to school? Yeah, I, uh, I went to Texas A&M. Uh, for my BS, got a, a meteorology, and then went to University of Illinois for my PhD in atmospheric science. Yeah, so you um, very, very two very well pedigreed uh, university uh, programs in terms of meteorology and atmospheric sciences for those that are listening to Weather Geek. So uh, we're talking to someone that certainly knows his stuff in terms of of meteorology. Uh, what is it about tornadoes that 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 really sort of ended up being the focus of, of much of your research, or did you just kind of happen into this? Were you studying other things prior to getting in? The severe weather? Um, no, I mean, really, tornadoes um, and supercell thunderstorms have been the focus of my research for, uh, well, since I was an undergrad. Uh, but I actually did an internship at the National Weather Service in Austin back when they had a, a, a weather service office there. And 
was participated in a storm survey of a of a storm that occurred um, you know, back in the gosh, it was early nineties. Um, kind of dates myself, but um, <laughs> oh, I and, can and, date even more than that, so don't worry. Well, fair enough. Um, <laughs> and and so and just. It, you know, as a as a part of the internship, I, I did this survey and took a, an interest in the case and analyzed it and just got totally hooked on on research. So the kind of the irony is, even though I was in a an operational internship, I, I really got hooked onto onto research. Yeah, I, um, I want to and, and pursued that as an undergrad with uh, undergraduate research with uh, Dr. Lou Wicker and Dr. Michael Bickerstaff while they were at A and M and. Um, and just to develop the passion for for research, but also research focused on supercells and tornadoes. Um, my my dissertation research was related, sort of. To, well, it was related to to tornadoes, kind of an unconventional storm. You may recall the Gerald tornado um, back in, in 1997. That was the focus of my research, and yes. not only did case study, but I also did uh, numerical simulations and. Um, you know, just, you know, basically, the, the focus was the the role of pre-existing air mass boundaries on the propagation and morphology of of supercell thunderstorms, and and that really was the the breeding ground for my interest in unmanned aircraft. Because after doing that work, which didn't use any unmanned aircraft, and actually did use only a little bit of of observational data, it was mainly focused on on numerical modeling. I realized that to to truly answer some of these questions, we needed observations above the ground. Um, you know, we couldn't just rely on on surface observations collected by even mobile mesonets. You know, where you have the control over where you're collecting observations, just those observations at the ground weren't sufficient. We needed stuff. We needed observations um, above the ground, and not and more than just soundings. And, and we needed to be able to do transects across air mass boundaries and see those smaller scale structures that may be important for impacting the storm. And so that was. You know, that was the, the, the genesis of, of my interest in, in using unmanned aircraft. Yeah, and before we get to the unmanned aircraft, and we're going to talk quite a bit about the unmanned aircraft and a, a new field experiment called uh, Targeted Observation by Radars and UASs or Taurus. We're going to dive into that deeply. But I, I want to weather geek out as a meteorologist and just someone that thinks this stuff is cool. I want to kind of geek out on your dissertation for a second. Um, so you, you mentioned these sort of uh, air mass boundaries. So were you looking at things like dry lines or um, meso or mesocyclones along these boundaries? Um, tell us a little bit more about that work because it sounds fascinating. Yeah. Um, so the, the interesting thing about the, the Gerald storm, well, there's a lot of interesting things about the Gerald storm. Um, n- number one, it produced uh, many tornadoes. It was, the, tor- the Gerald tornado was without question, the most significant is an EF-5 killed, I think, 27 people, uh, devastating, devastating tornado. Um, but there were a number of other tornadoes that were formed as a part of that storm complex. So that was one interesting aspect of it. The other interesting aspect of it was that the environment was very unique. Um, the air mass boundaries notwithstanding, the, the cape of that, of that environment was probably in excess of 7,000 joules per kilogram. Wow. Um, and, and, though, and for those of you that are sort of listening casually, uh, CAPE, this convective available potential energy is kind of an indication of, uh, boy, if you can get the air to rise, how, how violently or rapidly is it going to rise? So when you hear numbers like 7,000, that's, that's significant. Yeah. I mean, that's a theoretical updraft speed in excess of 100 meters per second. Exactly. You know, so that, you know, if you can convert that potential energy to kinetic energy, that's that's just an extreme amount of, of vertical motion. Um, 
Yeah, so I mean, that was another interesting aspect of it. But and I mean, you know, add to the list of all the interesting things. To me, the the, the most interesting aspect of it was the role of air mass boundaries on the, the propagation and also the intensity of these storms. And so w this this storm complex was observed to quote unquote zipper down this air mass boundary, and so it back built. Um, the the mean winds were light generally from the southwest, yet the storm moved, propagated, developed to the south towards the southwest, so in opposition to the mean flow. And so um, ultimately what I wanted to do was to see what the role of these air mass boundaries was. And so and in a modeling framework, you can, you can do this. In an observational framework, it becomes a bit more challenging. And so I put in the boundaries that were there. Um, first of all, I didn't put in any boundaries and saw what the evolution of the storm was. And not surprisingly, it didn't do what we observed it to do. It didn't propagate southwesterly along the boundary. It wasn't nearly as intense or long-lived. Um, the second thing is I put in uh, a pre-existing, you know, it, it was a dry line-ish. I mean, it wasn't really a, a traditional dry line. I was careful not to call it one, but though, though it had some similarities. Um, and, you know, that had an impact, but it still didn't behave quite like what we expected. And then I put in a second boundary, which was a cold front. And it was that combination of cold front and dry line uh, merging as the cold front moved to the south along the dry line that ultimately resulted in, the, in the, both the propagation and also the intensity of the storm that was near what was simulated or what was observed. Yeah. And that, and for those of you, again, <laughs> uh, we like to kind of uh, geek out here on the terminology and we, and we definitely like to use the meteorological words that uh, mean something to us as scientists. But uh, if you're not familiar with a dry line, uh, typically in parts of Texas and parts of the Great Plains, you can have a boundary that essentially is a boundary of, of air masses of different density or moisture. And the temperature may be the same on either side of that line. Uh, you've got moist air coming off the Gulf of Mexico and perhaps dry dry air coming off the Mexican plateau. They're similar temperature, but just have different moisture or density characteristics. And so that 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 moist air can be less dense and can al almost be bulldozed up like uh, a cold front does to warm air. So when you hear the term dry line, and, and uh, Adam, I'm curious, what you talked about the interaction of that dry line and cold front in your model simulations. That, were there any interesting things happening at what we call the triple point where you've got the dry line interacting with the cold front? Yeah. Yeah, uh, and I kind of expected or, or thought early on that perhaps we were getting vortex formation at that intersection. But in fact, that's not what was happening. Uh, any vortices that were forming were forming uh, near to the storm where the gust front intersected this uh, cold front um, as the cold front overtook the dry line as it moved to the south. But what was interesting at that intersection between the dry line and the cold front is that's where air began to rise. And it was kind of a gentle ascent. It wasn't this eruption of, of you know, vigorous, um, uh, you know, realizing this 7,000 joules per kilogram of Cape. It was more of a gentle ascent, but it started the process of the formation of this cumulonimbus cloud. Um, and so you ended up getting the this uh, protective region of of buoyant air as it rose gently and then eventually violently once it reached the the gust front um, and without that process without that kind of preconditioning if you will of the air as it gently rose along the dry line at near the intersect or along the cold front as it uh, intersected the dry line you didn't get the kind of 
propagation and, and continuous propagation. That was key. Continuous propagation where you have this just single updraft moving southwesterly along this boundary that you would get when you had both of those boundaries. So it was the coal front and the dry line in combination that required was required to get this nearly single cumulonimbus cloud traveling southwesterly uh, along the boundary. And, and the importance of that is not only was the updraft very strong, but because it was steady, it could realize the very weak rotation, you know, the vertical shear, that is the change in the vertical of wind speed and direction with height. Even though it was very weak, it was steady. So you had this single updraft, the single cumulonimbus cloud that was able to tap into this fairly weak shear, but then of course you had uh, 80, 90 meter per second updraft. So in the combination of those resulted in a supercell. It's a very unconventional way to get a supercell. I, I haven't seen any, really haven't seen anything like it. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with uh, Adam Houston. Uh, Dr. Adam Houston, he's a professor, a researcher at University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and he is some doing something that is fascinating. Everybody everybody has a twister story or a twister memory if they are in the field of meteorology or, or weather enthusiasts. Um, you're not launching little um, uh, sensors into the tornado, little balls, but you are using un, unmanned aircraft systems to study supercells. And again, supercells are the sort of, if you will, granddaddy convective systems of, of tornadic storms. They are these storms that have rotating updrafts or what we call mesocyclones. And so you are involved in a, a $2.5 million project funded by the National Science Foundation. Uh, from what I understand, and please correct me if I'm wrong, it involves four uh, unmanned aircraft systems, the NOAA, uh, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, P3 manned aircraft, eight mesonet trucks, three mobile radar systems, a mobile LIDAR system, and three balloon-borne sensors or launchers. Tell us a little bit about this Taurus project. Yeah, um, yeah, you you hit it. That's that's the instrumentation that's going to be involved. Um, you know, and and the unmanned aircraft system is one of the innovations of the or the the four. Uh, next year we'll be running four. This year we'll be running three. But the the unmanned aircraft systems are, are kind of the innovative part of this. But frankly, being able to bring all of these different assets into a single project is is truly the the novel part of this. You know, and. There, there have been other projects, uh, even bigger projects. So Vortex 2 back in 2009, 2010 was a bigger uh, field campaign. Many more mobile radars, um, um, a lot of mobile mesonets. Um, similar kind of focus, but the, the unmanned aircraft component, which we were uh, leading in, in Vortex 2, was much smaller. It was a proof of concept. We had a single unmanned aircraft. Uh, we could only fly up to 1,000 feet. We had a very small area over which we could operate. Um, in northeast Colorado, southwest Nebraska, northwest Kansas, that's it, in, in Vortex, too. Um, and so 
the, the, the big difference with Taurus is that we can have not only multiple aircraft, we can fly a four, we plan to fly four unmanned aircraft simultaneously. Uh, we can fly higher and probably most importantly, we can cover the entire Great Plains from Central Texas to Colorado to South Dakota, east to Iowa. Um, so these are not the kind of drones that you might pick up at the hobby store. Tell us a little bit more about these drones. Right, yeah. I mean, and most people, when they picture drones, they're, they visual, envision these rotary wing aircraft. I mean, I have I have one. My, my son has one. Um, you know, and you can pick them up at a hobby store. You can pick them up just about anywhere, and they're fun to play with. Um, you can do good science with rotary wing aircraft without question i you know we've we've used them for other projects but these are fixed wing these are more like your traditional aircraft where it requires flow over the wings to to maintain lift um and they're they're big too i mean you know also think people think of drones as being fairly small these are seven and a half seven and a half foot wingspan um they're still pretty light i mean they're they're a foam construction but um you know they're not small um, and the reason for that is because you need to have enough space in the aircraft to put batteries that can keep you f- in the air for two, three hours. Um, you know, we can't be up for 30 minutes and get reliable data. Uh, that's just not not feasible. Moreover, we need to be able to mount instrumentation on them away from the, the, the prop wash and, and all the other things that are happening on the aircraft. And And so – this what one of the unique things I, I I did some background research with our producers and it says it's the largest ever study of its kind on geographical area covered and based on the number of drones being deployed and so you have four. Tell us a little bit more about the strategy in terms of the four deployment of four uh, UASs, if you will in combination with the P-3, which is a manned right. aircraft. I mean, uh, are you going to have the drones at sort of, you know, different quadrants around supercells and the P-3 is going to be flying sort of over the – I mean, near, you can't fly over it, obviously. It's a very, very tall convective system. But just tell us a little bit about the strategy for the aircraft. Sure, yeah. The <clears throat> the unmanned aircraft are covering four uh, – sorry, three mission areas. Um, if, so for, for those who are familiar with supercells, and, and I'll, I'll – I'll explain this um, in two ways. One, um, there's the left flank, right flank, and near inflow. Okay, what those mean, the the left flank part of a of a supercell is just north of the main updraft. So you have this big, you know, strong updraft. The tornado typically forms um, on the kind of southern end of the updraft. Um, so the left flank mission will be focusing on the northern side of the updraft. There's the right flank mission, which is in the area where you have the rear flank downdraft. That's a downdraft that forms kind of on the backside of, of the supercell and is wrapped forward. It produces a gust front called the rear flank gust front. Um, and that's another area that we're, we're focused. Um, this third area is the near inflow. And so it's ahead of the storm, but not very far. So on the order of 10-ish kilometers uh, ahead of the storm, what we want to be doing in and that is is measuring how the storm modifies the environment because that will be compared to the far inflow mission. There are no unmanned aircraft in the far inflow mission. That's an in, a mission where we'll be releasing balloons with uh, sensor packages attached to them, the conventional radio sound. And so we can be we, – we, with those data and other data, we can compare how the, the in, environment is being modified by the, by the storm itself. Now, those are the unmanned aircraft. The the manned aircraft, the P-3, will be flying about 10 to 15 kilometers ahead of the storm in, in the 
low levels, about 4,500 feet, um, and they have uh, radars on, on board that, that will scan and through complex algorithms actually get the, the three-dimensional wind field uh, of, the, of the storm. In addition to that, they'll have a, a compact Raman LIDAR, which is a, a downward-pointing sensor that can measure, to a large extent, focused on the wind. So as it travels in the inflow ahead of the storm, it can also look at how the storm is modifying the inflow or if there are any air mass boundaries or other structures in the inflow in the environment that may be uh, interacting with, with the storm. Now, I, I understand that you and your students have also built a mobile mesonet uh, for this study. Tell us a little bit about a mesonet and a mobile mesonet. Yeah, um, yeah, we're we're building one for oh, a new one for for this project. We have two others. Um, the National Severe Storms Laboratory is also building uh, a couple of mobile mesonets. The, mo- the mobile mesonet is basically a truck SUV born sensor package. And so uh, standard sensors really have temperature, moisture, winds, and pressure, and they're mounted on a vehicle and the vehicle drives around and can collect those data in, in a mobile f- uh, framework. So you can, wherever the storm is, you can go find it. Um, so it's not something you, you know, pull out and stick in the ground and, and leave there. It's, it's something where you can drive around and, and, and get observations wherever you are. Um, the challenge... Um, is the multiple challenges for collecting observations from a, a, a mobile platform. Number one, you want to get the observations away from the, the airflow that's been modified by the vehicle itself. Um, number two, you need to be able to protect it from the environment, which you need to do with any any meteorological sensor. Um, but you also need to aspirate. You need to get flow across the, the temperature and moisture sensor. Um, and so all these things require choices that you have to make in the design. Um, the other thing you have to do for our particular vehicle is because our mobile mesonets will be a part of the unmanned aircraft system, um, the, the, the aircraft will be flying above our vehicles, we need to be able to see the aircraft. And so that means that we need to be able to see through the roof. Um, and fortunately, there are vehicles that enable this. You can get um, we have a Ford Explorer with a panoram- panoramic moonroof um, that allows you to, to see vertically and you can see the aircraft um, above you. Um, of course, given that we're in, in the vicinity of supercells, which can produce big hail, we yes. have to protect that giant piece of glass above us. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> and so we have a, I have a, a piece of acrylic, quarter-inch acrylic, that, that spans the entire uh, moonroof. Of course, that required, you know, engineering to, to make that work. So if the, you know, big hailstone hits us, the acrylic may fail, but the glass won't. And we can replace that acrylic sheet pretty, pretty easily. I want to make sure I acknowledge other organizations other than University of Nebraska Lincoln that yeah, are involved in the project. Do. Texas Tech, uh, University of Colorado Boulder, uh, NOAA's National Severe Storms Laboratory, and uh, the Cooperative Institute for Mesoscale Meteorological Studies at the University of Oklahoma are also involved in this project. And so you can see uh, it's a very expansive project. I also want to thank the Nebraska Public Radio Network uh, where Adam is coming from. We're talking with Adam Houston from the University of Nebraska. 
Alaska. Now, one of the, one of the goals, obviously, is to better understand supercell environments and perhaps the formation and prediction of tornadoes. But specifically, as meteorologists, one of the things that I know you're trying to get at is to reduce the number of false alarm tornado warnings and to improve the detection of these potentially lethal storms. Uh, tell the listeners about what we mean when we talk about false alarm tornado warnings. Yeah, um, the false alarm rate has unfortunately been pretty steady uh, over the last couple of decades at about 75%, which means that 75% of all tornado warnings don't actually result in or don't have an associated tornado. Um, And so, you know, the the social scientists have been exploring the impact of this, and it's it's a a nice complement to this this work is to have the social science bit to see what, what false alarm, what the impact of false alarm rates is. But nevertheless, I think everyone agrees that we need to reduce that number. We need to make sure that if a tornado warning is issued, that it's accurate and that there will probably be a tornado associated with it. Um, Without, and this is the challenge, without compromising the probability of detection, which is the the, um, rate at which you issue a a tornado warning is issued and rather a tornado forms and it had an associated tornado warning. So, I mean, one way to, to lower the false alarm rate is to issue more tornado warnings, but invariably the probability of detection will go up or go down. So that is you, you, um, you know, you don't, you don't catch as many tornadoes. And, and you know, someone could argue that if the probability of detection goes down, then it's probably worse than the false alarm rate going right, up. right. Yeah, I think that's something that's a big challenge. I know he, here in Georgia recently, we had a, a radar warned uh, circulation mesocyclone essentially move right over my house. I mean, really, there was there was no tornado that, that actually formed, but we certainly headed to the basement anyhow, uh, because I was watching it on radar scope and the weather service had a, a warning out on it because of what was indicated on radar. So um, it's a constant battle between sort of warning people and giving them ample time versus what's actually on on the ground, if you will. And so I, I think this is an admirable goal uh, for what, what you're trying to do. Yeah, and, and it's tough because um, we have to a large extent, oh, I have to be careful here. I, I, we, we've run up against a limit and, and you know, we, we have only so much, so many data at our disposal. Um, you know, there we have radar data, which is fantastic. We have surface observations, which are fairly sparse, but are absolutely essential. We have upper air observations, which are even more sparse, but also really essential. We can use satellite data. You know, there's there there are more and more data that are being available are being um, we have access to, but we don't have the kind of high fidelity, high resolution data that I think that I think most people believe we need to. Ad- to reduce the false alarm rate and increase the probability of detection for so at the storm scale, these very small scale that um, at which storms live, um, and so you know we, what we want to do is is really threefold with this project. And, and number one, we want to improve our understanding of supercells, and and so if we can uh, improve the conceptual model, then the forecaster can use the data that they have at their disposal to develop a, a, a model of that particular storm, fit it into the conceptual model, and make a decision about the likelihood that it would produce a tornado or even you know, produce significant hail or significant wind. Um, secondly, we want to be able to actually relate 
statistically, the small-scale structures that we see in the storm, the, the small-scale structures that we, we believe are there, that there's you know, some evidence exists that have coherency, but that are so small that you would never see them with the surveillance data. Nevertheless, if we can relate those statistically to the data that the forecaster do have access to, then we can start to kind of close that, that gap in understanding. And the third thing, and it's a ta- kind of a tangential um, impact from this work, but I, it's one that I want to mention is that the technology that we're using here, the unmanned aircraft, may at some point in the future be in, integrated into the meteorological surveillance network, um, either the fixed wing aircraft that we use or rotary wing aircraft, which we're not using but have a similar type of, you know, there's similar idea behind them. Um, so you know, the engineering and technological advancements that we make can be leveraged to eventually use unmanned aircraft for in, in the forecast process. They can actually see the data um, that are collected by by unmanned aircraft. And that's, you know, that could be decades into the future. And, and maybe it's a, not feasible, but the, the things that we learn about the technology could be brought to bear in, in, in that discussion. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm talking with Adam Houston from the University of Nebraska. And we're talking about unmanned aircraft systems or drones, if, if you want to call them that, and how they're being used to study tornadic environments, supercell environments. I want to make sure uh, the, the listeners understand this. So in these experiments or in these field studies, you're not flying the drones into the tornadoes or into the supercell. You're going to be flying in the in the circling around in those quadrants or those uh, various zones that you mentioned. I, I just want to make sure that people get, understand that because there there may be some people that think you're flying right into the tornado or the supercell. Yeah. No, that's a common misconception with what we do. And I mean, I, I get it. Um, it you know, we're, we're studying tornadoes and wouldn't it be cool if we could fly, fly into the tornado? Okay. That's not, you know, that's not what we're doing. Um, in fact, we, if we get we, our intent is not to get too close to the tornado. Our intent is to sample the airstream, uh, the environment that is feeding into the tornado. And you don't have to be right up against it to do that. Um, so, you know, in, to a large extent, we are actually flying into the supercell. You know, we're not going to be flying into hail because that you can't fly in, in hail. Um, you know, we're going to be flying underneath the, the the primary updraft, you know, kind of into the teeth of the of the storm. But not into the the heaviest precipitation, um, but away from the tornado. Yeah, d- definitely away from the tornado. Yeah, exactly. I just want to make sure that you got an opportunity to clarify that for the listeners. But it's still a super cool what you're doing, uh, irrespective of whether you're flying directly into a, a wedge tornado with multiple suction vortices. Um, one angle that that we might want to talk about is that you're going to be deploying here fairly soon, as I understand, perhaps in May, uh, during the heart of tornado season, if you will. Tornado season is year round; you just have a tornado anytime. But the peak of the season, you're going to be in Tornado Alley. What's traditionally known as Tornado Alley out in the Great Plains. Uh, 
from your perspective, are there any reasons why uh, this sort of traditional tornado alley is more amenable for this type of work than, say, sort of new areas that are popping up like the Dixie Alley where here in the south we're seeing uh, that there's sort of a secondary area of of tornadic activity? Uh, Any thoughts about operating in this southern type environment or do you really need that flat sort of landscape of the Great Plains to do what you're trying to do? Yeah, that's it's a good question because that that is one thing, and I mean you're intimately aware of this that the you know that part of the country that you live is is kind of the L shape to the 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 bottom L of, of Tornado Alley as we're becoming aware. Um, it, it, we have thought about this a lot actually because there has been have been projects that have focused on on that part of the country, tornadoes in that part of the country, namely the Vortex Southeast project. Um, <laughs> You know, the, our our choice, our focus on the Great Plains is not because of uh, a, an implicit minimization of of the importance of of Dixie Alley. It's really logistics. Um, what you have in the Great Plains that you don't have in the Southeast is a, a really good road network, and we are ultimately tethered to the roads. Even the aircraft, we they the it, it may not be apparent, but. Uh, we can't just send the aircraft off. You know, we have to maintain uh, visual on the aircraft at all times. Um, so ultimately, it's following the GPS location of a ground-based vehicle. Um, so we have to, we are tethered to the roads. The P3, of course, is not, but everything else is. So you need a good road network. One of the things the Southeast has that the Great Plains doesn't have that we don't actually want is a lot of trees. And so trees make it really difficult to to storm chase. I mean, you, your visibility is compromised um, and, you know, landing an aircraft, getting sites, you know, getting good locations for the mobile radars, which can't scan through trees. Um, there's a whole lot of problems that trees present. Um, and also hills, you know, there are, there are certainly some hills in, in the Great Plains to be sure, um, but hills and particularly the combination of hills and trees make it really difficult um, to operate Particularly the the mobile radars. Yeah, absolutely. and so yeah, I mean, it, it the Great Plains just presents um, a, a lot fewer obstacles and a lot more opportunities to execute a project like this. I'm curious. Tell us a little bit about sort of envision a real time day. You're you're set up. You're deployed there in the morning. Uh, you see, you're probably doing your meteorological analysis to see where the activity is going to be later that afternoon. Uh, walk us through how that day evolves if you see sort of a targeted hotspot that day. Yeah, and then the, the, um, a particular day actually begins the day before when we're thinking about what where we pre-position, um, you know, so where we, where we stay, where we lodge for the night, the previous night has been informed by what we think is going to happen the following, the, the next day. Um, so assuming that we've made a decent decision, um, you know, and we're, we're near that area, we you know get up in the morning, we start prepping the vehicles, gassing up and all that stuff. And we have a forecast briefing where we discuss where we want to try to, to target um, some of the limitations and, and et cetera, with also some, some time spent towards the following day, you know, we, you know, okay, once we're done with today, where do we need to, to end up? So once we've made that decision about where we want to go, we get on the road. Um, hopefully we don't have to travel really far, but, you know, it, you know, it, it just depends on how, how good our forecast well, was. What's, what's your range? I mean, what, what's your sort of a reasonable operation range for you? Yeah. Um, well, you know, I mean, if we, we hope to get, get left about 11 o'clock in the morning, um, if, 
storms don't fire until six o'clock that evening, we could theoretically drive until five or six o'clock. Um, you know, so we could drive six hours. You can get a lot of distance in six hours. We really don't want to do that because it tires everybody out and you know, it's just, that's a lot of driving. Um, but, you know, imagine how far you can get in six hours. You can, sure. you know, get, I don't know, five, 600 miles. I don't, I don't know. I mean, you can certainly make a lot of, of headway. We don't really want to do that. Um, ideally, our forecast has been good enough that uh, that we have lodged in a place fairly near where we're, we need to be that day. So, you know, we drive 100 or maybe a couple hundred miles and, and, and we stage, you know, we, we get to a spot, we think that's the area where storms might fire or, or where storms might move to or where storms that have already developed might intensify and we wait and, you know, then we'll refine our position thereafter. Maybe from that point, we actually start into a, an actual target storm. Um, but ultimately, at some point, we make the decision that a given storm is our target storm and we go out. And and so the P3 at that point has already been launched. I mean, it, it, it would have it would have taken off uh, many hours before then because it's coming from Salina, Kansas. And so we you know, may not be near Salina. It would have had to, to get to wherever we are. Um, all the assets go. We get in position. We have a pivot instrument. Uh, the pivot instrument is the left flank unmanned aircraft system for a variety of reasons. We try to make sure that our deployments are synchronized around that instrument so that when that instrument is collecting data in the storm, everyone else is collecting data at the same time. Um, we collect our data. We land the aircraft. We redeploy the mobile radars. Maybe we follow that storm. Maybe we target a different storm, or maybe we're done, you know, depending on how late we started or, you know, how the storms have evolved. Yeah, a lot of people don't maybe understand exactly how some of these projects come to fruition, but uh, you're funded by the National Science Foundation, and the National Science Foundation is very interested in basic science, understanding hypothesis-driven research. So this is not necessarily an operational mission, if you will. This is a research right. mission. So talk to us about at the end of the day, at the end of Taurus, which is the targeted observation by radars and UASs of supercells, what do you hope to have learned? I mean, obviously, you're going to co collect the data, do your analysis, probably publish it in peer-reviewed journals and go to conference in the conferences. But what's your ultimate end game uh, there? Speaking of which, I hope to see that movie end game soon. But <laughs> talking about <laughs> Tornado Avengers here, what's your ultimate goal for this uh, project? Yeah, uh, good good point. And NSF is interested in basic research. And our aim is to advance the understanding of supercells particularly supercells that produce tornadoes. And what we are hypothesizing that is that there are coherent structures. Coherent, that is, they don't last for just a few seconds or a few minutes, but persist for many minutes, tens of minutes, or maybe even an, you know, an hour in advance of tornado formation. And these are small-scale structures, ones that are largely invisible to the surveillance radar network, surveillance meteorological network, and therefore require these research-grade instruments to get into the storm and collect those high-resolution high data. But our, our hypothesis is that these coherent structures can be a uh, essentially cause tornadoes. Um, and so if we can do that, if we can advance our understanding and, and we ultimately improve the, the 
the conceptual model of, of supercells, advanced that conceptual model, which um, has been tweaked over the years without question because of these kinds of projects and, and complementary numerical modeling projects. Um, but, you know, we want to see if, if maybe m there are changes that need to be made uh, to, to make this a more robust conceptual model. Yeah, it's a really exciting project here, and we're, we're winding down here our discussion with Adam Houston uh, from University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Before we let you get out of here, where can the listeners – I mean, this is fascinating, and it's going to be happening uh, soon here. We're, we're, we're taping this in, in the 1st of May, and I believe you're going to be going strong here in a couple of weeks. Is there anywhere people can follow you or f on social media or websites anywhere to find out what's going on with Taurus? Yeah, um, we'll be – we have a, a social media presence, so we have a, a, a Facebook um, page that people can can like and follow us. Um, I think it's Taurus Experiment. Um, we have a YouTube channel, a Taurus uh, Supercell, so T-O-R-U-S-P-U-E-R-C-E-L-L. Um, we have a, a, a web page. We won't, you know, we won't be updating that too much in during the field campaign. Sure, we'll sure. be updating the. Um, the Facebook and YouTube channel a bit more frequently, uh, taurus.unl.edu. And we'll have a, we have a Twitter account, so we'll be posting there as well. And that's, I think that's Taurus Supercell as well. And, and, and if you're wondering how, how Taurus is, it's T-O-R-U-S, I believe. Correct. Is that correct? Yep. By the way, I'm, I'm a former NASA scientist, so uh, we spent a lot of time during my time at NASA thinking about acronyms. How long did it oh take you to come up with the acronym? <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes. That... I, and my wife made fun of me because we were we spent so much time trying to come up with a good, <laughs> no, I, a good I, acronym. I know and, how important it is. Well, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, this the, this acronym will last much longer than the field campaign. It will, you know, if we choose a bad one, you know, and we'll have to repeat that bad acronym for for many years. So, yeah, yeah, this was definitely not the first. I can tell you, it's not the first iteration, um, but you know, it's. It's not too bad. Oh, I'm sure. Now, now, Adam, is there anywhere people can follow you personally on social media? Um, yeah, I mean, I have my, my group webpage, um, SSRG. That's the Severe Storms Research Group. Um, that's we have a, a I have a Twitter account, um, and I, I might be posting some stuff there. Um, I, I I do on occasion, particularly in the lead up to Taurus. But we'll for Taurus in particular, I'll be I'll be posting stuff on the Taurus pages. Very nice. Uh, this is where we're going to have to end it. I want to thank uh, Adam Houston for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Uh, I also want to, before I get out of here, I want to send a big shout out to our new Weather Geeks production team. Uh, we have some uh, awesome new producers, uh, Sarah Dillingham, Heather Zahns, Matt Reagan. Uh, I, I think that I've gotten everybody. Uh, these are some new additions to our Weather Geeks production team, uh, in addition to sort of our the old timers now, Mike Chesterfield and Matt Zitkowski and myself, Chris Warren, and others. They're sort of some of the original Weather Geeks team. But I also want to thank our radio engineers that uh, help us out here on a week-to-week -week basis. Uh, Adam, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. My pleasure. Thanks, Marshall. And I am Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. Thank you for joining us as always on the Weather Geeks podcast. Continue to listen and be sure to subscribe. We'll see you the next time on the Weather Geeks podcast.
Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. 